from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We're on the road from Murray State University's Hudson School of Agriculture for the Soybean Promotion Day. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The health of the rural economy was at the center of a hearing on Capitol Hill this week. I think it's going to be important for us as we look forward uh, to try to be, develop what is called a circular economy in which the wealth is created and stays in rural areas. But health concerns in rural America are coming from the nation's top infectious disease expert. If you combine those two, there'll be enough protection in the country. That's as Dr. Fauci tells us the pandemic will end. As Kentucky tornado victims continue to clean up, one 16-year-old's efforts took flight. I mean, I was the middle ground. I wanted to help them when they had, had absolutely nothing left. Compassion took control, and there are still ways you can help. And in John's world, what does the cyber war mean for your farm? Now for the news, from supply chain issues to an uptick in COVID-19 cases, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack on Capitol Hill this week talking the health of the rural economy. Vilsack giving his take on the state of the rural economy before the House Ag Committee. Vilsack hoping the discussion on the next farm bill will include efforts to keep more of the money made on farms in rural America in those communities. Our extraction economy is an economy that essentially uh, we take things from the land and off the land. And unfortunately, rather than converting them and value adding them in and close to the rural areas where the natural resource is, they are transported uh, to long distances where they are uh, value added in some other location where opportunities and jobs are created elsewhere. I think it's going to be important for us as we look forward uh, to try to be, develop what is called a circular economy in which the wealth is created and stays in rural areas. But the physical health of rural America may be suffering. Health experts telling us this week the peak of the Omicron variant may be passing in larger cities, but the wave may just be starting in rural America. Farm Journal's Clinton Griffith is talking this week with chief medical advisor to the president, Dr. Anthony Fauci, while continuing to advocate for vaccines and boosters to prevent hospitalization. Dr. Fauci recognized all immunity will ultimately work together against the virus. I think when you get a situation of getting more and more people vaccinated or boosted, or unfortunately, people getting sick or getting infected, recovering and having a degree of protection. If you combine those two, there'll be enough protection in the country. New models from the COVID-19 scenario modeling hub created by university and health experts show the Omicron peak sometime between February and March. For many rural areas, the danger lies in staffing at rural hospitals. The real impact is on these small rural hospitals and their workforce. Um, workforce has always been a problem for rural facilities, but now after we've seen the pandemic um, really flatten the rural workforce, and we're seeing a lot of rural healthcare professionals become infected with COVID, they're struggling, honestly, to have, have the staffing that they need at this moment. The Centers for Disease Control reports Omicron now accounts for nearly all U.S. COVID-19 infections. China announcing that it cut rates for the first time in two years. 
The People's Bank of China also announced a one-tenth of a percentage point cut to two of its key policy rates. It acted after GDP grew by more than 8% in 2021, but slowed down in the fourth quarter, with growth of just 4% compared to the same period in 2020. Economists believe Beijing will enact more easing measures in the coming months in a bid to defend what they expect will be a bottom line of 5% economic growth this year. When asked earlier this week about possibly removing tariffs against China, President Biden said that such a move was uncertain right now. It's estimated China bought more than $56 billion of U.S. ag under the phase one agreement, including grain. And work will soon be underway to make sure grain and soybeans continue to move out for U.S. exports. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers saying it will use $732 million in infrastructure funding to modernize Lock and Dam 25 on the Mississippi River in Winfield, Missouri. That that's about 50 miles north of St. Louis. The Soy Transportation Coalition says nearly every bushel of soybeans and corn shipped along the Mississippi from Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, and Wisconsin passed through that one lock. Money from the infrastructure bill, $3 billion worth, is also being used to help deal with the growing threat of wildfires across the country. USDA is saying it will work with the Department of Interior to try to stop the catastrophic nature of fires. Announcing a 10-year plan to thin forests, removing dead trees and brush, improve the health of forests, and make communities near them safer. The first step is to identify priority areas that need worked on based on risk. And a new effort to help lessen the supply chain crunch, a new federal apprenticeship program for 18-year-olds to drive semis across state lines is getting the green light from the federal government. 49 states and Washington, D.C. give commercial drivers licenses to people under 21, but they can only drive big rigs within their state. This new program will take those young drivers and train them on interstate trucks. Apprentices must have a state-issued commercial driver's license with a clean record. Well, when we come back, a cold snap bracing much of the country heading into this weekend. We'll have a check of weather next. Time now for a check of weather. Well, we're in Kentucky this week, a cold snap hitting much of the Mid-South heading into this weekend. Even some areas seeing some snow. But does that bitter cold continue throughout the rest of the month? Yeah, that's right, Tyne. We are going to be looking at a lot of cold air flowing into at least the eastern half of the U.S. as we head through uh, really the rest of this week, and we'll be showing you that here in just a minute. But check out the root zone. Again, a lot of moisture there in the Mississippi River Valley and into the Tennessee Valley as well. Still a little bit drier there where we had a ton of snow last week and still very dry from Texas on into Oklahoma, Kansas, and places back into the Four Corners region as well. Something that we'll be watching for, hoping to get some more moisture as we head towards that springtime season. Now, a little bit of improvement here from the last time we checked in on this here in the uh, North Carolina coast. A little bit more coming as we head through this week, but still very dry from Louisiana, southern Arkansas, back into Texas, and really from the Rockies on to the west coast. Improvements have been made over the past couple months, but still very dry there. And again, we are going to be watching the northern plains for a little bit more moisture heading through this week. Now, that jet stream, it's dipping very far down to the south and that storm system heading into Monday moving up the east coast. That is what is going to eventually bring all that cold air to the south. Even though the jet stream looks like it's a little bit farther to the north, we're still looking at that chilly air hanging around into Wednesday for parts of the deep south, even getting some uh, nice chill down there along the Gulf Coast and into parts of Florida there. Not down into the 30s, but we're going to be looking at maybe temperatures sitting in the 40s and low 50s as we head through parts of the day on Wednesday. And then 
The jet stream, well, it's going to dip even farther down to the south as we're watching another system late in the week that looks like it's going to miss the east coast, but still colder air coming in from the Great Lakes over into the mid-Atlantic states. Meanwhile, back in the west, staying very, very warm. Four Corners region, and most of you know this pattern, very dry back there during this time. This type of pattern is what we're going to be looking at heading into the beginning of the month of February. So let's take a look at Monday. Uh, not a lot going on, but we got a clipper system here. Behind that, another reinforcing shot of that cold air for the upper Midwest and into the Plain States as well. Meanwhile, system coming out into Texas and the southern uh, Mississippi River Valley there. Eventually, these two are going to merge and move up the East Coast, likely missing most of the area, but still something to watch heading through the middle part of the week. It's going to remain very warm back there in the West. Not much going on as we head through Wednesday. Wednesday, although that colder air dipping all the way to the south, things pretty quiet other than that. And then heading into Friday, frigid air remains well to the north. A little bit of lake effect snow, but back towards that more mild conditions down there in the south. And here's a look at the temperatures this week. Obviously, the cold air is going to be the big story in the east. Meanwhile, above normal there, southern California, parts of Arizona, and in the northern plain states as well. Precip this week, though, below normal there across the Great Lakes, down into the Mississippi River Valley and back out in the west. And here's a look at those February temperatures. It is looking very warm down the east coast and back there into the Four Corners region. Meanwhile, above normal precip there in the northwest and the Great Lakes. Time back to you. All right, thank you. Well, when we come back, the acreage debate is really heating up. Andrew Jackson and Alan Hoskins join me from right here at Murray State next. Got equipment to sell privately but tired of scams and hassles? Visit MachineRepeat.com and click Sell Mine. MachineRepeat.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online. U.S. Farm Report on the road from Murray State's Hudson School of Agriculture is brought to you by the Kentucky Soybean Promotion Board. Putting checkoff dollars to work. Learn more at kysoy.org. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We are very excited to be here at Murray State University. We have Andrew Jackson as well as Alan Hoskins on the panel with us. We'll have a good mix today talking about the markets, but also talking about some ag finance and really, you know, what do you need to be thinking about right now? But Alan, let's, or, or Andrew, let's look back to last week, USDA, some major reports, but it seemed like wheat was the biggest surprise. We saw an increase in wheat acreage that some people did not expect. Are we seeing that acreage increase here in Kentucky? So in Kentucky, I think you, you probably are going to see an increase in acres now. Some of that, you know, the thing with wheat always is how much of it actually gets harvested, right? Planted acres doesn't always equal harvested acres. So some of those acres can be, can be flexible in the spring, depending on what, or in the summer, depending on what prices are then. So overall, yes, I think you'll see an increase in wheat acreage in Kentucky. Yeah, you know, talking to some producers actually in, in Texas, they haven't seen some rain in, in, in part of Texas since they planted wheat, and they don't even know if they're going to have a wheat crop. So there is a lot of question right now about this winter wheat crop that's in the ground. Do you think that there is so, some momentum when it comes to wheat prices that could continue into 2022, or do you think we left that behind uh, last year? Well, the momentum that we've seen since, uh, you know, really since maybe the 1st of December has been negative momentum. The last two months is, has not been great. We're, you know, a buck or so off the high. So we really need to reverse that. If you look at the long-term chart, the continuous chart, we've, we're, we're still in good position, I think, but uh, the short-term daily charts have, have taken some damage. Uh, but yes, we do need to turn that around. And, and part of that, we, you know, we're going to need some support, I think, from other crops. Uh, I mean, that, that's going to help. Yeah, speaking of other crops, 
Um, Alan, I know you're having a lot of discussions right now with some farmers in the countryside. So when you look at, at Southern Indiana, Southern mm -hmm. Illinois, parts of Kentucky, and the discussions that you're having right now, do you think we are going to see a major acreage shift? Or is it really a question right now uh, of farmers just trying to decide what to plant? I think the latter is exactly what's going on time because there are intentions out there, but the availability of fertilizer, the availability of seed, those things are still undetermined. And so what is going on, there are plans being put in place, but this year more than ever that I've seen in my career, there's also the knowledge that we may need to pivot from these plans once, maybe twice, before we actually get to planting season. I mean, we're always faced with uncertainty as we head into planting season, when you look at weather, when you look at markets. I mean, we're always having this acreage debate. But Alan, have you ever experienced a time where there's this amount of uncertainty when it comes to even sourcing the inputs that we need to plant this, this crop? That could be the final say in, in what a lot of these producers plant. In a short answer, no. I've never seen this type of circumstance in my career. And in talking to farmers, they're voicing the exact same thing. And they are working toward trying to normalize the year as much as they possibly can but also understanding that they're dealing with more risk than they've ever seen. And they are thus far doing, I think, a really good job of engaging in conversation with the people that can help them and trying to have a multifaceted plan. Well, Andrew, Alan mentioned risk, and we talk about managing risk all the time on this show, but it's really hard to manage risk when you don't know exactly what input you're going to be able to source this late in the year, you know, at, at what price. So when you look at the input prices that we're faced with today and also managing risk on the commodity side, what advice do you have farmers for right now facing this, this, this great uncertainty headed into planting? Well, first of all, you, you have to know your numbers. Uh, you have to know your budget. Uh, and you have to do a true cost comparison between you know, corn and soybeans. And sometimes you just have to do the best you can with the data that you have at the time. All right, and, and you need to be flexible if you can at all. Uh, in case you know you run into a situation where you do have um, where you do have you know inputs that you can't get, um, you know in a normal year most farmers wouldn't think twice about going out and, and booking 100% of their inputs and selling steadily throughout the year or waiting till they know they've got a crop in the ground and, and, and a crop to harvest and, and then selling. But I'm not sure that this is the year. Uh, to really fly by the seat of your pants and, and book 100% of your inputs, book $1,500 in hydrus, um, and just wait to sell corn. Um, if there's money in the budget and enough that you're willing to book in hydrus or you're willing to book whatever other input is, you really need to consider playing this year really close to the best and, and trying to protect that margin. Yeah, I do have a lot more questions, so we need to take a quick break and then we'll, we will be back with more U.S. Farm Report in just a moment. Well, last weekend on the show, John talked about ransomware attacks, but agriculture could be a target in the future. Here's John Phipps. Last week, I outlined how the cyber war, especially ransomware, was now one of North Korea's largest exports and how that success is spurring them to deploy more resources into those efforts. Other than being a curiosity, does it have any impact on U.S. egg now or in the future? Well, along with the extortion money, North Korean hackers, like thousands of others, are getting perhaps what they crave the most, fame. Headlines like these get read in North Korea. 
and around the world, and the hacker underworld rates hackers like NFL quarterbacks. Given these powerful motivations, hackers are raising their games. As a result, insurance companies are making tough decisions on whether ransoms or damage from a hack should be covered or not. Regardless of their decisions, the losses from hacks are set to spiral, and somebody's going to pay them. Any product or process that is dependent on secure data and its transmission could be a target. And another thing is rather than spending resources attacking giant manufacturers or institutions like banks that already have beefed up crypto security, maybe they'll start looking further down the food chain to targets that can't afford a whole lot better defenses. Hacking lots of these for more modest ransoms might be a more lucrative strategy than swinging for the fences. The Iowa co-op hack last year could prove a precursor of this non-glamorous industry targeting. And as we speak, Russia may be attacking Ukrainian computers as a military tactic. There is a growing linkage between cryptocurrency and hacking. They seem like natural partners to me since one criticism of cryptocurrency is its likely use for money laundering. Another possible weakness is in the computer chips themselves, not just the software or internet connections. My uninformed guess is that the tractors being hacked to override factory engine controllers or emission controls are ripe for such self-inflicted hacks. Buying chips from unknown sources may be like putting small time bombs in your machinery. Now these predictions are far from expert. But the big reason I see increased danger from stealth cyber war is because we still think of our industry as a simple chain largely outside the global economy when it is really part of that vast web. Agriculture cannot escape risk simply because we're a relatively small part of the economy. We could be unexpected collateral damage when other industries are intact. In fact, I think that's how we'll find out just how connected we are to the rest of the world. Thank you, John. Yeah, ransomware attack took offline a major auction site late last year and even impacted machinery auctions. So it's already impacting some parts of agriculture. All right, well, when we come back, machinery Pete has a look at tractor tails. That's right after the break. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales, a special one for you Oliver lovers. Join me in North Central Illinois. We're gonna learn about a classic 1650. Richard Van Hefty here, Anawan, Illinois. This one here is a 1962-1650 gasser. It actually belonged to the widow that lives here and he died 25 years ago. So now it's basically hers now. But She's got a daughter that thinks she wants a tractor, so this is the one her daughter thinks she would like. Basically, this one's simple and easy to drive, so we generally let her drive it. It's a good tractor. Uh, it was used for uh, a little bit of everything around the farm, spraying and uh, cultivating was its main job. and I. Uh, I, run, I helped the neighbor here too, so I cultivated with it too, but I generally run this 1066 big diesel with an eight roll. This one just had a four roll on back in the day 20 years ago. <laughs> so 
other than that it it's been a pretty darn good tractor it's it's just like all gassers it's hungry for gas but otherwise it's a nice smooth running tractor hauled up grain in the fall and parade oh yeah all, all tractors are in parade every year yeah every tractor i got is in the parade and still a basically good tractor it just is thirsty thanks greg well, it's been more than a month since a rare mid-December tornado tore through much of Kentucky, but the road to recovery is far from over. We'll tell you why next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, December 2021 will be a month Kentucky never forgets. Just about 25 miles from here was ground zero for a devastating tornado. And as we learned while in Kentucky this week, the road to recovery is far from over. December 10th, 2021 was the day devastation hit. You could not have charted a path with more destruction throughout rural Kentucky than what happened in mid-December. The F4 tornado was the deadliest tornado in Kentucky's history. There were still people around that was hurt, injured, walking around. It was just, just terrible. 58 fatalities and structure after structure flattened and gone. There's nothing in downtown Mayfield for, there'll be 10 to 12 city blocks. There won't be anything left on in downtown Mayfield. The tornado tore through towns as well as farms and its 200 mile path. Our agriculture industry got hit more than any other industry in our state. And literally we have the path of destruction from the Boot Hill, Missouri to just south of Louisville, Kentucky, 200 miles. Kentucky Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Quarles says the devastation to agriculture in the state is vast. We have deceased livestock just south of Louisville. And if you work your way back towards Western Kentucky, we have collapsed grain centers, grain silos. The poultry industry got pummeled. Close to 30 poultry barns completely collapse or damaged beyond repair. Keith Lowry lives in farms just 10 miles south of Mayfield, Kentucky, a town considered ground zero for the tornado damage last month. And I made a call to the mayor and to the judge executive and they said, just come on up. He said, we've got big problems. That call happened at 2.30 a.m. And the next morning, Lowry, a farmer who also owns heavy machinery and operates a trucking company, headed straight for Mayfield. And when I got there, they had uh, three or four medical emergencies that they could not get to. They needed ambulances, so we took our heavy equipment, cleaned up some streets for them, and got back in there. And uh, I'd never seen anything like it. It's just like a bomb had went off, and it wasn't hardly anything left. While it's been a steady stream of cleanup efforts blanketing the rural town of Mayfield, the work has only started. We've been at it for six weeks, and you can't hardly tell we've done anything. It's just that much devastation. The devastation came with a price tag that's still unknown. We don't know how expensive this tornado storm system will be towards Kentucky agriculture, but what we do know is that it will be the most expensive storm damage for ag that our state has ever seen. There's no question about it. As residents work to rebuild, the costs of materials have climbed and some materials are now in short supply. Another big issue in our state right now is the lack of fencing. There's literally areas where there's, you don't know where the property lines are at anymore. 
Plus, you have debris, nails, other, other items that can be uh, harmful to livestock. And so we are still are dealing with sorting livestock, particularly beef cattle, and also animal welfare issues. Grain bins were also crushed with questions of where that grain will be stored this harvest. And even large facilities didn't escape the damage from the storm. One of our local grainers there uh, had like close to six million bushel of grain. And it's all, I don't think it's gonna be salvageable for the chicken industries, which is very big in, in uh, Graves County. As of today, we're still hauling it out. I'm not personally, but uh, I know some farmers that are hauling it out. That feed mill supplies close to 200 farms with feed. But the local granary, we're, we're hoping and praying that uh, somebody will come in there and, and rebuild because we, we need that granary. And the chicken industry needs the granary there too. And while some local businesses may never rebuild, what's happened the days and weeks after the tornado is something Corals says is nothing short of remarkable. And what's interesting is that agriculture is taking care of agriculture. And so Pilgrim's Pride got hit with a hatchery, 8 million chicks gone, feed mills out, but Tyson's helping. Uh, uh, supply the feed right now. So we're trying to help out each other. I will have to brag on my fellow farmers. Uh, they, they were called into duty and we showed up. Uh, if you know the farming community well enough, we don't have to be asked. We just get there, we get the job done, and we're, we'll, we'll get it done eventually. But uh, it just seemed like it's a never ending process. While the support has been local, relief has also been pouring in from miles away. I'm just humbled to see the random acts of kindness from Americans I've never met. Uh, we had donations of feed troughs. We've had uh, <laughs> 1,800 pairs of gloves. We have uh, feed and hay coming in from all corners of the United States. And of course, there's the monetary donations as well. Coral says the Kentucky Department of Agriculture, along with the Kentucky Farm Bureau, set up a GoFundMe page called the Kentucky Agriculture Relief Fund, a fund that has eclipsed over $1 million in donations. That's as Kentucky works to rebuild. The road to recovery, I don't know if we'll ever see it back like we will. Probably won't, probably won't. But it's time for us to rebuild. We will rebuild and uh, we will come back stronger. Now we will include those links on how you can help on agweb.com. And as you just heard, these individuals here are just grateful for the help that's going a long way in recovery efforts, but much more is needed over the coming months. All right, when we come back, we'll continue our marketing discussion from right here at Murray State. Andrew Jackson and Alan Hoskins rejoin me next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Pre-order by January 31st with coupon code USFR for free shipping. U.S. Farm Report on the road from Murray State's Hudson School of Agriculture is brought to you by the Kentucky Soybean Promotion Board, putting checkoff dollars to work. Learn more at kysoy.org. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. All right, a great first discussion on markets, but now as we continue that, you know, Andrew was talking about really you have to know your numbers right now. We talk about that every year. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at the cost side, what are you telling producers right now when you're trying to pencil in those and, and, and those will likely change? Well, first thing I'm telling them is this is a year to be responsive, not reactive. And what I mean by that, if you're sick and you go to your doctor, the doctor gives you medicine, you react, that's bad. If you respond, that's positive. What I'll say going into this year is be prepared to respond to the changes that are coming, not that might come, that are coming. And what I would specifically tell producers on knowing your numbers, 
make sure that you're including everything in those numbers time. Make sure the living expense is in there. Make sure any planned capital expenditures are a part of the cash flow that you do. And also understanding that, as Andrew talked about earlier, if you have inputs booked, have a fallback plan. What happens if you have them booked and paid for, but the availability isn't there? Those are the kind of conversations that need to be occurring at this time, as opposed to as we get toward planning season or even into planning season. Andrew, earlier you talked about cash and making some of those, those cash sales. When you look at basis right now, what is that telling us? Is it telling us that that supplies may be a little bit tighter than what USDA is leading us to believe in the, in the latest reports, or is it a different situation that you're seeing here locally? Well, I think that's a, uh, it's kind of a loaded question, not in a negative sense, but there's a lot to unpack. Um, so as far as, uh, you know, the, the basis, we, we had a short crop in the Northwest, okay? So, you know, we're gonna see basis, you know, pretty firm up in those areas, but what I'm seeing in this area over here, especially, is we're, start, we're seeing, you know, a little bit of carry in the market, you know, at, and the last several years, we may not have seen that carry. So the structure's telling me that we've got enough, we've got enough grain moving up front. Uh, the soybean processor seems to be covered. Um, I think overall national basis, national basis overall is, has, been, has been fairly firm versus what historically you know, we, we've come to expect this time of year. Uh, but I, I do think that a lot of the reason for the firmness in that, in that national basis overall is the farmer has been a tight holder. Balance sheets have improved over the last couple of years and that's nothing to be ashamed of if you're a farmer. Uh, you don't need to apologize for making money. You don't need to apologize for not being in a, not for being in a strong position. Um, so part of it is the farmer doesn't necessarily, hasn't necessarily had to make puke sales, uh, hasn't had to, had to just spill it out on the market. Now that may change as we move forward as, as the farmer starts you know, pricing inputs. The, the most aggressive sellers of grain that I've seen today have been the buyers of inputs. So if you're booking, if you're booking inputs, you probably need some cash up front. Locally, what I've seen is a fairly soft Kentucky basis. Some of that has to do with logistics, and we, you know, you can't have a conversation with talking about the effects that uh, COVID has had, uh, the effects on the southern market, and, and just being able to execute. Destination bids might be good, origin bids might be, are weak because it's hard to get it from point A to P, B, and you're having to pay a you're having to pay a premium for that execution. Alan, when we, when we look at inflation and we look at the latest reports, uh, you know, and we see inflation continue to rise and we're seeing that maybe the Fed is going to have to raise interest rates in order to, to really address some of that inflation. Mm -hmm. You know, these conversations now, we've been talking about what is the possibility that we'll see rates increase. So what is something crucial that farmers need to be thinking about right now if we are seeing these rate hikes on the horizon? Well, obviously, Tyne, and you've heard me say this before. Number one, if you are in a position today, most farmers are in a good working capital position. But even if you are, still look at your overall debt structure today. It's still a good time to take advantage if there's some long-term money that makes sense for your operation before these rate increases, if they come, come. It's still a really good time to do that. The other thing, make sure that as you're putting numbers together, shock your profit and loss statements from an interest rate perspective. Shock them 2%, 3%. See what that does to your overall profitability and one other thing that I would add, kind of going back to what I said, said earlier, this year more than ever, don't just put your profitability projections together, put cash flow projections together. Because of what Andrew just talked about, there's gonna be cash needs this year that are gonna be completely different than we've ever seen before. So I would tell you it's really important to do cash flow projecting this year as well as profit projecting.
Andrew, we're almost out of time, but what is your one piece of advice that you have for farmers right now? Manage your margin. Don't get caught up in what you think is a sexy flat price. Manage your margin. All right, we need to take a break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, in the midst of tornado tragedy, one young lady stepped up in a big way. With grit and compassion, one high schooler took to the sky to get relief to those who needed it most. Mary Shock isn't your typical teenager. I've been around it my whole life, and uh, since the beginning, I've always wanted to fly, and I've always wanted to do it by myself. Growing up in a family full of pilots, her dream was always to fly. I, I kind of looked into it, and you have to be 16 to solo, which means I can be in an airplane by myself. And in December, the day after the tornado struck Kentucky, Mary had a calling to help. Seeing what I saw on the news that night, because we stayed up all night watching, I knew I just, you know, I had to serve somehow to help these people because I was available and I had the resources to make this happen. With a burning desire to help, an idea came to life. My aunt kind of texted me. She kind of gave this little idea and I was like, that is perfect. So me and her took it and started running and I, I kind of thought, I was like, well, maybe I should ask mom and dad. So she asked her parents for permission, already knowing what the answer would be. They enjoy me helping. They always tell me to lead by example. And leading by example is exactly what she did. The night before we left, um, one of our pilot's buddy's wives actually um, put it out on Facebook. She said, I'm going to leave the church doors open in one of our really small local communities. We're going to leave the church doors open and we're going to leave the airport open. It's unlocked. Just bring the stuff. You know, we were trusting everybody just to be honest and bring it. A call for help that was answered within hours. It was just overfilling with all the stuff that people had donated. I mean, it was just put out on Facebook at about 7.30 that night and by 7.30 that next morning, in a 12-hour period, there was so much donated at the airport and um, at that local church. Loading up her four-seater plane, there was only room for one. And so with that, Mary took off on her first solo flight. We've taken everything, you name it. We've taken, taken toiletries, water, um, clothes, blankets. Christmas presents was actually our last one. The 200-mile trip to Mayfield didn't happen just once. She's completed the flight three times, each loaded with supplies to help. Natural disasters don't define, you know, poor or rich or anything in between. It's just people. And at the end of the day, I mean, those people had nothing. It didn't matter if they lived in a, in, a, in a small trailer home or if they lived in a huge mansion, it was gone. And with the resources to provide relief, Mary did what not many 16-year-olds can do. I just wanted to help those people because, I mean, I was the middle ground. I wanted to help them when they had absolutely nothing left. Her mission isn't over. Mary says she has another trip planned with more supplies to help the recovery and relief, as it seems in the pilot seat is exactly where Mary is meant to be. My dad makes the joke all the time. I'll be driving like we drove in the snow the other day. And he was holding on for dear life. He's scared to death to drive with me. But he said he, would abs he absolutely loves flying with me. Learning to do while also living to serve. Mary Shock is proof the sky's the limit when compassion takes control. What a special young woman and an amazing story. Thank you for sharing, Mary. Well, when we come back, we've been talking about soybean demand. John Phipps continues that theme next. Farmer use of biofuels. 
U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AgriGold, your seed ally in the field with unparalleled options that perform on your farm. Learn more at agrigold.com. Well, here at the Soybean Promotion Day, one farmer told me the sky's the limit when it comes to soybean demand over the next few years thanks to renewable diesel. Right now, John Phipps talks about soybean demand on his farm. I am interested in the percent of biofuels used by the agricultural producers who raise and sell the crops nationwide for its production. It would seem that they would use it in abundance in order to support their livelihoods and as a good advertisement. And that's from Tucker Harrison. And thanks for the question, Tucker. I need your address to send you a mug. The term biofuels would include ethanol type products and biodiesel, only we don't use that term very much anymore. I could not find farmer use specific numbers, but some overall comments. Now the most successful product other than the usual mandated blend of ethanol has been 85% ethanol products, E85. As a rule, farmers are more likely to use it if they have an ethanol plant closed or if they sell their corn to them. They are, of course, road fuels. Farm machinery is overwhelmingly diesel powered. For the last 30 years, biodiesel has struggled for market share due to its cost relative to conventional diesel, even with some whopping subsidies. And early on, some chemical problems also plagued biodiesel. Many of us switched to biodiesel for exactly the reasons you state and experienced clogged filters and cold weather fuel line problems. Proponents argue those issues have been resolved, and that may be, but once birds twice shy for some of us. Besides, biodiesel isn't really a thing anymore. It's been absorbed into a much larger and more lucrative category of renewable diesel. That industry is set to explode, according to the Energy Information Administration, so much so that the question of the small demand represented by on-farm probably wouldn't make much difference either in usage or publicity. Demand is being driven by the various forms of sustainability adopted by businesses and mandated by some governments like California. In fact, one proposal to switch the airline industry to renewable jet fuel will need several million more acres of soybeans, possibly supplanting corn as the largest crop acreage in the U.S. The tricky bit is selling the resultant mountains of soy meal that remain after the oil is used for fuel. New refineries for soybeans are being announced almost routinely to supply this expected demand. What might be more effective for farmers' bottom lines is to focus less on the limited ag usage of their products, but reconsider their harsh denial of climate change and carbon emissions. Thanks, John. And if you have thoughts on John's take on demand this week, you can email him at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, when we come back, the efforts to help Kentuckians in need, they're continuing as those relief efforts continue to ramp up. We'll have more on that next. Well, as we've talked about this week, while no price tag has been placed on the tornado devastation in December, Kentucky agriculture continues to come together to help those in need.
This week, Murray State University launched the MSU Regional Agriculture Disaster Relief Fund. Hudson School of Agriculture Dean Tony Brannon says it's a way to propel relief efforts already underway. We experienced the devastation of the West Kentucky tornadoes and today's farmer appreciation kicked off a campaign called Let's Grow It Back. We've had many Murray State Ag students affected, many farmers and agricultural businesses in our area have been impacted. And this is to supplement the Kentucky Farm Bureau and the Kentucky Department of Agriculture uh, and the Cooperative Extension Service Re uh, Relief Fund. Uh, it goes to the Kentucky Farm Bureau Educational Foundation. And if anybody wants to make donations, they can designate the county that they want it to go back to or even to designated Murray State University agriculture students. To give to the MSU Regional Agriculture Disaster Relief Fund, Brandon says you can send the donation to the address on your screen. And in the memo line, you can either enter the county in Kentucky you would like that money sent to or Murray State University. And again, this is all funneling into the state's Agriculture Disaster Relief Fund. That is on GoFundMe. And if you would like to help, we will have those links on agweb.com. And we are continuing our road show next week as we hit the road from the Great Lakes Crop Summit in Michigan. And that's as we'll continue to work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.